Hi everybody, this is John Allen, the editor of Crux. Welcome to Last Week in the Church, the show devoted to relentlessly regurgitating news about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you already know. I'm coming to you as ever from Rome in Italy. And before we begin, I do want to say that all of us here in Italy are heartsick at the moment about this terrible cable car tragedy that took place in the north of Italy over the weekend. Uh, Fourteen people dead, uh, including an entire family of five, that is a mom, dad, a little kid, and a grandpa and grandma. The one survivor, a five-year-old child, is in critical condition, and it's one of those situations that just has an entire country heartsick. Uh, and so if you can spare a thought and prayer today uh, for those folks, for the dead and for the survivor, I know all of us here in Italy would be grateful. Uh, so uh, here is the five-course menu I have cooked up for you today in terms of Vatican news of the past week. We begin with the Vatican's worker bees flexing their stingers. Then, the Supreme Court takes up a key abortion case. A bishop tries to protect his priests from financial scams. And be still my beating heart, but we are getting ready for a synod on synods. Uh, and finally, ruminations on a landmark anniversary that absolutely nobody seems to be celebrating. That's what we've got for you this week on Last Week in the Church, and we will begin dishing it up right after this. So we begin today with the Vatican's worker bees flexing their stingers. Uh, so uh, a month or so ago, Pope Francis issued a motu proprio, that's a, an instrument through which he amends church law on the basis of his own authority, uh, I've, I've mentioned this before, but one of the great ironies about Pope Francis is that this is a pope who constantly rails against legalism, uh, yet, you know, he changes church law the way some clerics change their cassocks. I mean, it's just all the time. Uh, and so this was one of them, uh, and basically it decreed some salary cuts in the Vatican in relationship to the Vatican's ballooning annual deficit. It posted a deficit of around $100 million last year, uh, driven mostly by shortfalls because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, now, the news item out of that motu proprio was that the Pope was cutting the salaries of the cardinals who work in the Vatican, and that made a big splash, of course, because these are princes of the church, and to see their, oh, their sails trimmed a bit, I suppose, always fills certain hearts with delight. Uh, but the salary cuts actually affect everybody. Uh, at the Vatican, uh, including the frontline workers, the people who scrub the stones in the Piazza San Pietro, who open the mail in the dicasteries, who trim the, the flowers in the Vatican gardens, and on and on. Now, uh, those worker bees this past week uh, basically struck back. Uh, they sent an open letter to Pope Francis uh, in which they requested a meeting with a delegation representing them, arguing that the problem uh, financially in terms of salaries in the Vatican isn't that everybody is overpaid. It is simply that certain people are overpaid. Uh, they pointed specifically to superstar lay managers that they said 
uh, earn salaries that never cease to generate amazement and that are not consistent with the spirit of service to the church that is supposed to animate the Vatican. They also complained about overspending for costly external consultants. Basically, their case was, you don't have to cut our salaries, and in fact, you shouldn't cut our salaries. What you should do is cut back on these inflated salaries you're spending uh, on certain big dogs and stop hiring all of these external consultants who, by the way, uh, to date have not really contributed anything that has revolutionized the internal operations of the Vatican. Now, you might ask, who are these superstar lay managers that they're talking about, I mean, th these worker bees don't name names, but I think everybody knows the kind of people they're talking about. So give you a couple of examples. When Cardinal George Pill became the Vatican's prefect of the Secretary for the, Secretariat for the Economy, that is its chief financial officer, uh, he hired his CFO from the Archdiocese of Sydney, a lay financial expert by the name of Danny Casey. Uh, Casey made a salary of about 220,000 euro a year, and he also got for free an apartment, Vatican-owned apartment, that rents for about 2,900 euro, or it would if it were on the open market. Uh, or take, for example, Rene Bruhlhardt, who was uh, the president of the Financial Information Authority, the Vatican's financial uh, intelligence watchdog. Uh, Bruhlhardt, prior to coming to the Vatican, had been the head of the financial intelligence unit in Liechtenstein. Le uh, he had been the vice president of the Egmont Group, that is the Council of Europe's uh, sort of union of financial intelligence officers. Uh, his claim to fame was that he was the guy who restored Saddam Hussein's private jet to the people of Iraq uh, in the aftermath of the Iraq war. He followed the paper trail, asserted ownership, and gave it back to the people of that country. Uh, he was making a salary reportedly of about 400,000 euros. That's the kind of thing these worker bees are complaining about. Now, the argument for these salaries is that if you want world-class expertise, you have to pay for it. The argument against them uh, is that if you're going to come to work for the Vatican, you ought to be prepared to take a cut. Uh, in any event, the worker bees are not taking these pay cuts lying down. Uh, all predictions are that Francis will meet with this delegation. We don't know what's going to come out of that. But it does illustrate the dilemma that every pope faces. On the one hand, when it comes to money, we want popes to be ruthless, heartless, efficient managers. We don't want any scandals. We don't want any waste. We want good return and investment. At the same time, we want them to be fathers of families who have big hearts and who take care of their people and who are moral exemplars when it comes to Catholic social teaching. Newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, these two expectations don't always sit easily next to one another. Sometimes it's the round peg in the, or sorry, it is the square peg in the round hole. Uh, remains to be seen what Francis is going to try to do to reconcile these two things, but let's face it, it ain't easy. All right, second on the rundown, and a kind of related note, uh, there is a bishop in the Italian Diocese of Padua named Anthony Cipolla. Now, he is one of my favorite bishops in Italy simply because his last name means onion. <clears throat> and if you listened to this show last week, you will know 
how passionately I am convinced that cooking and Catholicism belong together. The fact that we have a bishop named Onion uh, here in Italy to me just is like the slammer, right? It's the exclamation point in my argument. But in any event, uh, Bishop Cipolla uh, has a priest, an elderly priest in Padua, who used to be the head of a major diocesan charity that was the victim of a $450,000 scam. Basically, there was a criminal gang uh, that targeted this charity that was run by this elderly priest uh, and convinced him over the course of a few years to give them, uh, to give people posing as people in need, to give them money for various things, uh, to tide them through because they'd lost their job or to buy food for their kid. The estimate is that this criminal gang actually called the charity run by this priest 14,000 times over several years looking for handouts. Now, if you do the math, that means that they scored about 32 euro for every phone call. So this was not the one big score, right? Uh, this was death by a thousand cuts. But in any event, it was a half million euro scam uh, at the end of the day. Uh, and Bishop Chipola has said this is not the only case. So he has invited uh, anti-fraud experts into the Diocese of Padua to begin a training course for all the clergy in the diocese to help them spot the warning signs, the red flags uh, of a potential con operation uh, and to protect themselves against it. Now, I, I would suggest this connects with the story we began with today which is the worker bees in the Vatican and the question of whether certain superstar lay managers are being overpaid, whether external consultants are selling the bat of the Vatican a bill of goods and getting nice juicy paychecks without actually delivering anything. What it illustrates is that fundamentally most clergy are not trained to make financial decisions. They're not trained to be business managers. They didn't go to the Harvard School of Business. They went to seminaries where they studied theology. They studied dogma uh, and liturgy and pastoral counseling and canon law. Uh, and the, the, the upshot uh, of all of this is uh, that if the church wants to protect itself against fraud, one of the ways it needs to do that is to make sure that honest to God, competent financial professionals have oversight authority over its money. Now, to a great extent, that has already happened in the Vatican. It has happened in many chanceries around the world, though not all, uh, as the Padua story illustrates, but in many parishes, many Catholic organizations, many religious orders, Again, not all, uh, but many. Uh, this is still not the case. Uh, and the thing of it is, it was, it was lovely, right, when we can live in a world in which you had a big-hearted pastor and you could just hand him envelopes of cash and he would put that cash into a box. And then when a person legitimately in need would come to him, they would get that cash and you didn't need to involve accountants, and you didn't need to involve checks and balances, and you didn't need to involve audits because it all ran on trust. That is a beautiful ideal, but the reality of the church's story in the 20th and 21st century illustrates 
that that trust-based system of accounting is also rife with the potential for abuse. And unfortunately, <clears throat> the reality is that the system is going to have to sacrifice a certain degree of that pastoral trust in favor of good business sense. That's the lesson that Padua has had to learn the hard way. And if you were running any Catholic organization that hasn't yet learned it, uh, you might want to think about uh, what the implications of that are. All right. The Supreme Court in the United States is taking up a key abortion case. This is the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Uh, and basically, the issue at hand in the case uh, is whether Mississippi, which has banned abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy, whether it has the legal right to do so. And the reason that that question occurs uh, is because for the last 20 years or so, or so, the United States Supreme Court has taken the position that abortion bans prior to what it considers viability, that is the moment when the fetus could at least theoretically exist on its own, that abortion bans prior to viability, and the Supreme Court has set that mark at about 24 weeks of pregnancy, whether abortion bans prior to viability are constitutional, that is, whether they can be reconciled with the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that essentially legalized abortion in the first trimester. Now, the Supreme Court, up to this point, has never actually directly considered the question of whether abortion bans prior to what it considers viability or constitutional that's what is at issue with this case. The Supreme Court decided on May 17th to hear arguments. Uh, those arguments will be presented in the fall when the Supreme Court generally hears oral arguments, and we could have a decision by the end of the year, at least in theory. Uh, now, uh, given the new conservative and pro-life majority on the court, many observers are thinking that there is a decent chance that this Missouri ban on abortion after the 15th week, could be upheld by this court. Uh, that is, they could at least rule that it is not ipso facto, not de facto, unconstitutional. Uh, and if that is the case, it could, of, co of course, uh, encourage more restrictive abortion laws in other parts of the country. The two dioceses in, in Mississippi, I believe they are Jackson and Biloxi, I hope I'm right about that, they have uh, filed amicus curiae briefs in support of the restrictions, arguing not only that the, the viability standard set by the Supreme Court is arbitrary, but also that there is evidence that fetuses can experience pain even before that 24-week standard, and that therefore it is reasonable for the state, the state has a legitimate interest in trying to protect the developing fetus from that pain. Now, uh, from a global point of view, here's what's interesting about all of this. People from other Catholic countries often wonder why the Catholic Church in the United States, from their point of view, appears so obsessed with abortion. Well, here's the thing. Other developed Western societies are not having these debates. Uh, in other developed Western nations, the legal situation of abortion was resolved two or three generations ago, two or three decades ago. And politically, culturally, socially, the issue simply is not in the air. 
in other parts of the world, Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, with a few exceptions, these abortion debates are not happening. Asia, these abortion debates generally are not happening. So bishops in those parts of the world are not presented with these questions. America, almost uniquely, is a superpower. It is a developed Western superpower in which abortion is still a live issue. It is unsettled. And exactly what the legal standing of abortion is going to be remains a deeply contentious and polarizing political issue. That means the church and its bishops are compelled to respond. Now, you can debate whether the priority status the bishops apply to this issue or exactly what they say about it is appropriate, but you really can't fault the bishops for being focused on the abortion issue because the truth of it is the culture is focused on the abortion issue. If you want the, bi the bishops to be focused on other questions, then the trick would be to get the culture to resolve this question and to move on to other things. Okay, fourth, and, and really, I mean, I can't, I, I can't overestimate, I can't describe how excited I am by this development, but the Vatican is gearing up for a synod of bishops devoted to synods. Now, to me, this is a bit like having a synod of bishops on watching paint dry or sitting outside and waiting for the changing of the seasons. That is, it doesn't strike me as the most heart-pumping thing you could possibly do. And yet, you know, there are observers who believe that this is potentially among the more consequential moments of the Francis papacy. Basically speaking, this synod on synods, technically it's on the theme of synodality, was supposed to take place next year. But the Vatican held a press conference this week announcing that it is going to be delayed until 2023. And in the meantime, Pope Francis has approved a new process in preparation for this synod. And so this process unfolds in three stages. First, there is a diocesan process. And the Vatican Synod Office is going to be sending a questionnaire that is the kind of instrument uh, to diocesan bishops around the world to guide this where bishops are supposed to be consulting laity. They're supposed to be consulting ordinary rank-and-file Catholics about what they think, about how participation, the virtue of synodality, that is, participatory decision-making, decision-making based on listening, sh shared decision-making, can be more thoroughly integrated into the life of the church, where it works, where it doesn't, what ought to be done. So the bishops are supposed to be listening to the laity and sort of collating all of that. Then they're supposed to pass that on to the National Bishops' Conference. Then in a second phase, there are supposed to be continental assemblies where bishops and other participants from the church on various continents come together to listen to what was said at the diocesan level, the national level, and then try to put together continental observations, continental recommendations. That's the second stage. So that when the bishops and other participants actually gather in Rome for 2023, and we are all assuming that by 2023, they actually can physically gather in Rome again uh, in the Vatican Synod Hall uh, and do the normal thing. 
when that happens, they will be drawing upon all of this input that has bubbled up from lower levels of the church for a couple of years. Now, of course, the fly in the ointment here is uh, that it still is local bishops who are deciding which laity ought to be listened to and which pieces of advice ought to be passed along. So some people think uh, this is all sound and fury signifying nothing, that all you're going to get is the kind of predictable, staid recommendations that, you know, hand-picked lay advisors might deliver to you. In, in the classic Italian phrase, uh, some would say, this is a Gatto Pardesco reform. Gatto Pardesco is the title of a famous Italian novel. And the best known line from that novel is that everything must change so that everything may remain the same. Uh, and some people think that's what's going on here. Others, however, would say if this thing really works the way Pope Francis intends it, it, it is a revolution. Uh, because all of a sudden, synods of bishops are not just going to be bishops sitting around uh, and thinking about things, making decisions, uh, but that the people of God in a very direct way will have the opportunity to have their say, uh, to put their two cents uh, into the mix. Uh, you know, as ever, uh, we will see how this works out. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I'm just going to say this, uh, that if Pope Francis's Vatican team finds a way to make this synod on synodality interesting, uh, then I think they deserve a Golden Globe. Uh, and potentially they deserve Oscar uh, consideration. Uh, because notionally, the idea of sitting around and spending a month talking about this subject just, I don't know. I, I just really don't know. Uh, all right. Uh, and then finally, uh, ruminations on a landmark anniversary that nobody seems to care about. Uh, today is Monday, May 24th. It is the sixth anniversary of the release of Laudato Si, Pope Francis's first ever uh, eco-encyclical. Uh, it is also the end of the Vatican's special year, that is an entire year, devoted uh, to celebrating the release of Laudato Si, uh, and also closes their special week capping that special year, uh, that was full of webinars and conferences and essays in Civiltà Cattolica, L'Osservatore Romano, and every other, you know, tool the Vatican has in its toolbox for yelling and saying this is a big deal. Now, uh, in the meantime, uh, this past week also marked the 130th anniversary of the May 15, 1891 release of Rerum Novarum. That was the first ever social encyclical issued by a pope, in this case, Pope Leo XIII. Uh, it came at the peak of the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, and it was basically Pope Leo's attempt to say that there is a Catholic alternative between ruthless robber baron capitalism on one end of the spectrum and socialism and violent communism on the other. Uh, it was the birth of the modern Catholic tradition of social teaching. Every social encyclical by a pope ever since has owed its very existence to Rerum Novarum. Three of those social encyclicals were explicitly issued on its anniversary, Mater e Magistra by St. John the 23rd, uh, Quadragesimo Anno, 
uh, by Pope Pius XII, uh, and Centesim Asanas by St. John Paul II. But every social encyclical by a pope has been inspired by and, in a sense, legitimized by Rerum Novarum. Rerum Novarum was utterly unprecedented. Never before had a pope chosen to comment on current social conditions. Prior to that, encyclicals were supposed to be devoted to these kind of timeless, eternal, dogmatic, liturgical, and spiritual questions. But Pope Leo XIII decided to get down into the hurly-burly of modern life to diagnose what was actually going on in the here and now and to offer concrete Catholic alternatives. Uh, and the fact that he did it, and, and it should be remembered, that he did it at a time when popes were supposedly prisoners of the Vatican, when the Roman question was unsettled, when a pope was sovereign over no territory whatsoever. Uh, and yet, he reinvented the modern papacy, making it a voice of conscience in contemporary affairs. And in that sense, Laudato Si, just like every social encyclical that preceded it, is utterly unthinkable without rerum novarum. And yet, it is sort of passed in complete silence. And here's the thing about rerum novarum that I find particularly interesting. Of course, papal encyclicals are never one-man shows. I mean, they're approved in the end by a pope, but many people contribute to them along the way. The primary contributor Terrarum Navarum was a Dominican cardinal by the name of uh, Tommaso Ziliari, Ziliata, excuse me, Tommaso Ziliata. He was from Corsica, like Napoleon, uh, and he was considered the most brilliant theological mind of his, of his generation. He was the Thomas Aquinas of Corsica, and left to his own devices. He would be a household name today. He would be a theologian up there with Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Yves Congar, and Joseph Ratzinger, and you know, all those other great theologians whose names echo through the ages. There would be books devoted to him. There would be theology faculties named for him. Instead, do you know what Zeliata has today? There is a small street here in Rome named for him. That's it. Uh, it's about four blocks long. What's on it right now is a tattoo parlor and an American barbershop. That's it. There is absolutely nothing else up and down this peninsula name for him. Nobody remembers who he was. And the reason is because when the Pope asked him to sacrifice his own talent and his own career in order to devote himself to anonymous production of texts that would, that would apply to the whole church, including Rerum Novarum, the single encyclical, arguably, that transformed the Catholic Church more than any other in 2,000 years of church history. Tommaso Ziliata said yes. He operated behind the scenes, in the shadows. He forewent celebrity for the sake of change. And I would submit to you that the story of the Catholic Church is filled with these anonymous heroes people whose names you've never heard because they chose to operate behind the scenes in the shadows, thinking they could do more to promote real change on the inside quietly than on the outside tossing bricks. 
Now, we need both. We need those prophets who hold our feet to the fire. But we also need those change agents on the inside who, with courage and humility, make a difference in the real world. So I would ask on this anniversary, not only reread Rerum Novarum, because I swear to you it holds up, but have a thought and a prayer for Tommaso Ziliata and all the anonymous heroes throughout Catholic history, without whom the church's best, most shining moments never would have happened. All right, that's our show for this week. want to remind you that full coverage of all these stories can be found on the Crux site, so that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. Also, if you like Last Week in the Church, and why wouldn't you? Come on. Go on to the social media platform of your choice. Give us a like. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a retweet. Go forth and make disciples of all the nations. I also want to thank our good friends at Longbeard, a digital marketing and design company. Their headquarters are here in Rome, but they also have a footprint in many other parts of the world. They are the very best at what they do, and they know the Catholic Church extremely well. So if you are a Catholic interested in digital and IT issues, check them out. Nobody does it better. We will be here next Monday. Same bat time, same bat channel. I know it's Memorial Day. It's a holiday in the States, but not here in Italy. Work goes on, or, you know, at least as much as it ever does uh, here in Italy. Uh, So we will be on air. In the meantime, stay safe. Stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week.